You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So today I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that was quite the week. On Monday afternoon, uh, Andrew Thorburn sent a group text to myself and a couple of the other pastors at City on a Hill, sharing the news that he had been appointed the CEO of the Essendon Footy Club. I was so excited for him because Andrew is a remarkable bloke. I got to know him properly in 2020 when he came into the role of the chair of the City on a Hill board. The board's basically a kind of governing, uh, an oversight group. They're not there to lead the church, but to help the pastors lead the church. And Andrew was just perfect for this job. A passionate Christian, experienced, gifted, well-credentialed. And in the coming months, I saw his leadership skills come to the fore. Uh, he really is a remarkable leader, very capable at, at bringing people's thoughts and ideas out in a discussion and then pointing the way forward. He's really, really gifted in that. But more than that, I came to see who he is as a person. Uh, not long after coming into that role, I was asked to be the senior pastor for City on a Hill and for six months during a period of real uncertainty and turbulence for our church. And Andrew was one of the people who helped me through all of that. I saw his character up close, his warmth, his calm, his compassion, but most of all, his gospel heart. You see, on a board, there's kind of lots of stuff that you do around uh, policies and strategies and budgets and things like that. But the things that get him really excited, truly excited, is any gospel initiative. Any time where we're talking about proclaiming the name of Jesus, that's when Andrew gets really fired up. And so I was so excited for him to get this new job, this, this dream job. But then just a few hours later, I saw the first article go online about Andrew's links with the controversial church, City on a Hill, and my pulse began to race. At first, a few of us just exchanged 
text messages, kind of half amused. Oh, it looks like we're in the paper. Tuesday morning, I woke up and sort of peered at the screen through my hands and started up the top of the page. But by 9.30 in the morning, it was already going down. And I thought, okay, perhaps it'll pass. Perhaps we'll talk about something else. I shared some screenshots with some of our other uh, leaders and our communications guy, Dave May, uh, wrote back, oh, that's good. It looks like it's going away. I really don't understand how this is all controversial. Perhaps this will just brush over. Famous last words. (laughs) A few hours later, I was at Andrew's house just after he'd uh, resigned from the job but before the media had been told. At first, the club had figured told Andrew that, look, it should all just blow over, just sit tight for a couple of days and we'll be okay. That's what I figured too. I mean, cancel culture is like this. It kind of blows hard like a cyclone and destroys everything, but then moves on just as quickly as well to destroy something else. Surely the same thing would happen here. But then the Premier stepped up and I knew that we were in trouble. He has enormous power in our culture, can really frame and shape the conversation. And it was clear that he wanted to make something of this. So when he described our views on homosexuality and abortion as absolutely appalling and said that I don't support those views, that kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred and bigotry, it's just wrong, then I knew that things were starting to turn. This ratcheted up everything tenfold and now the pressure really came down Already Essendon and the AFL had told Andrew that he'd have to resign from our church board. They wanted him to distance himself from us and denounce anything that we had said. That was the only way forward. And now they were pressing really hard uh, there at his house, almost standing over him, phone calls every couple of minutes. Andrew kept trying to find a way forward. He, he really wanted to do this job. He could see a way in which he could be a Christian in a position of influence and use that use it as a way of, of living out his faith, all of those things. He really wanted to do this, to, to show his faith. He wondered if he could thread the needle somehow, find a way to placate the media but still protect his conscience. But, of course, he couldn't. You can't placate the mob when it's out for blood. And you can't protect your conscience if you're asked to compromise it. And he just wasn't willing to do that. The last few days have been uh, just mayhem. Um, As you know, uh, City on a Hill is a movement of churches and I'm part of the senior leadership of the movement and uh, which helps with kind of big projects and so on. And so I've been kind of right near it in the middle of it all throughout the week. And the torchlight has just been shining so brightly on us. There were camera crews outside our office, Channel 9, were trying to find Guy or threatening to find Guy and do an ambush interview at the airport. Um, I was heading over to Andrew's house on Wednesday. To My wife had made some soup for him and, and she, he loves her soup, you see. And, and, and so I was going over there to give it to him and I was just in my tracky dacks and I thought, hang on, I might get on TV uh, and she'll be annoyed at me if I'm wearing my tracky dacks. And so... I made sure I changed and sure enough I was filmed. So if you, if you saw Tupperware on the news, that was ours. Uh, our website was going bananas. We normally have 300 visitors a day on our website. Uh, one day this week it got up to 50,000, then down to 30,000. I suggested perhaps we should do some kind of advertising campaign to raise awareness at that point. <laughs> but I actually don't know how people found our website because they kept getting our name so wrong. 
Uh, I've heard City on the Hill, Church on the Hill, City on a Hill song, whatever it is, Church on the Church on the City, something. It's all been so many different varieties. But in the midst of all of that, it was incredible to have the support of so many people around us. Text messages and phone messages, Facebook posts everywhere, blogs and opinion articles in the newspapers, people giving up their Essendon memberships. Uh, someone from the morning service offered to bring all their Essendon gear and burn it on the altar back here. But um, uh, a guy in America uh, messaged us to say, look, if you see some money that's come in from America, that's from me. I just heard about this story. You don't know me. I've just heard about you guys and I just want to support you. It was really quite remarkable. But it's been really crazy, really, because um, we've suddenly found ourselves in the middle of not just a media storm, but a culture war about conviction and conscience, about freedom of religion, about what it means to be a Christian in contemporary Australian society. And it's been very intense, very stressful, and there's been times where I just wish it would just go away and finish. And yet at the same time, it feels very, I feel somewhat prepared for it. You see, earlier this year, we studied the book of 1 Peter, and it felt like that was the perfect setup for this moment. Looking at that book, we saw a people who were in a very similar position to ours. They hadn't been facing physical persecution, but they were facing spiritual opposition and rejection by those around them. In chapter 1, verse 6, we read that they've been grieved by various trials. Chapter 2, verse 12, people are speaking against them as evildoers. Chapter 3, 16, they're being slandered and reviled for their good behaviour. In chapter 4, they're being maligned or put down, criticised because they refuse to just go along with what everyone else does. And in chapter 3, they need to make a defence because people are attacking them. And I want you to see how Peter addresses them in this chapter. He calls them, verse 1, elect exiles. Elect exiles. The word exile just feels so appropriate, doesn't it? An exile is an outsider. They, they live among us, but they don't belong. They're often unwelcome or resented. They don't fit. They are, as one writer puts it, social misfits worthy of contempt. And that feels like our situation right now, doesn't it? It's certainly the situation for Andrew. As he said on Tuesday when he resigned, today it became clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square. I was being required to compromise beyond a level that my conscience allowed. It's now clear that uh, Christian faith and my association with a church are unacceptable in our culture if you wish to hold a leadership position in society. And that's, that's, that's true. Like it is clear. Uh, Andrew has a very significant career. He's been the CEO of a couple of major banks. But there's no way that he will be able to have a job like that anymore. That career is over for him. And it's not just for him either, is it? Christians throughout our city and our nation feel uncertain and insecure this week. In his second uh, statement on Wednesday, Andrew said, over the past 24 hours, I've received hundreds of messages of support. Concerningly, many messengers uh, express genuine worry for jobs and employment prospects due simply to faith. I believe that there are many Australians who feel the implications for their livelihoods, aspirations and participation in community life. 
And he's right, isn't he? Already I know of a number of people who are really worrying for about their future job prospects or their current job. But it's probably felt most acutely by you, isn't it? Because you're part of City on a Hill. I mean, that's what we've been told this week, that our views, our beliefs, our ethics are appalling, that we don't belong, not in senior leadership positions, not in the AFL, not in our society. We, we are being told that we are exiles. So I bet it was tough walking into work this week. I guess that many of your co-workers know that you're a Christian. Some of them may know that you're part of City on a Hill, that controversial church, and so it must have been challenging. You see, you have a much tougher gig than me. I'm in a pretty sheltered environment. I, I preach God's Word on a Sunday and there are times where I really feel the pressure or I feel a bit anxious because I'm going to have to say something that's countercultural. But I have the safety of doing that in a home, on home turf with people who generally agree with me most of the time and they're expecting me to say these things. But you have it in a different uh, experience. You are Christians on foreign soil. You are exiles out in the secular world, meeting with people, working with people who when they hear your, if they were to hear your beliefs, they would reject them. They would see them as hateful. They would want to exile you. So this week must have been tough. And I wonder how you responded. How did you go with that? See, when the, the pressure comes in like this, we can have lots of different responses. You think of the psychologists who always talk about flight or fight and so on. So some of you will have felt great fear this week. You've probably been thinking, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen for Christians in our country? What's going to happen to people in our church, to, to me, to you, whatever it is? I felt very exposed. You know, it's, it's a horrible feeling knowing that there's all of these people going through our sermon archive trying to find things that could shame us. Now, let me be clear. I, I don't mean that I wish my beliefs were different or that I think differently about things. I don't mean that. I truly believe that God's vision for marriage is both right and good. I'm passionately pro-life. I mean, you've probably seen over the last few weeks how this is becoming a, a big thing, a conviction of mine more and more and how we can do that practically. But I do fear people not liking me. Like I hate an awkward moment in a conversation, let alone people hating me. You know, and when Daniel Andrews called us bigoted, then you feel like there's this great big bee that you're carrying on your chest and everyone can see it. And, and I keep thinking, oh, how do my neighbours think about me now? You know, they know that I'm part of this church. They, we've talked about different things. I had a really big conversation with one of them about homosexuality, all of that different stuff. How do they view me? And perhaps you're the same. Like, who is it for you? Maybe you've had friends texting, texting you, like, is that your church? And then the next question, do you guys actually believe that stuff? And, and it's not that you don't believe it. It's just that you, you kind of figured, look, I'll, I'll get to that further down the track when I've spent more time with them, I've shown them more about who Jesus is. Then I'll kind of talk about those difficult topics, but now it's just all there. It's all out. 
and it's hard. Or perhaps you've actually loved it, you've embraced it. You know, alongside the fear, you see, I've also felt a desire to fight, to stand up, to defend our religion and to go for it, to defend our faith. Some of it is born out of frustration. I mean, our blood just boils at the hypocrisy and the contradictions of everything. I mean, the statement from Essendon, uh, Andrew doesn't align with our values as a safe, inclusive, diverse and welcoming club as they shove him to the door, or making clear this is not about religious vilification. And then in the next sentence saying, look, as soon as we heard about his religious ideas, we dealt with it. Like, how does that even come together? So in the midst of all of this, you probably wanted to fight some of us. And you might even have felt like we didn't do enough. Yeah, I wish Andrew had done more or Guy had said more or Luke had done something, whatever it was. You might have had that real desire to stand up and go for it. Either way, it's clear that this is a a significant moment, a revelation of where things are at in our society and for Christians. This, though, is the reality for God's people. In fact, we're told to expect this. In fact, in 1 Peter 4, uh, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In fact, in chapter 2, he says, to this you have been called. This is what we're supposed to expect. And now here it is here. Now it's come. And we must choose to stand firm. But how do we actually do that? How, How do we find the strength and the conviction to stand firm? Well, I want to suggest three things, and I'm afraid it's different to what's on your uh, website because <laughs> I changed it about 7 a.m. this morning. <laughs> Sorry, Micah. I want to suggest three things. The first thing is we need to know what we believe. See, one of the things that's become clear this week is just how ignorant or ill-informed people are about Christian teaching. Uh, You see, when Andrew went for the job at Essendon, he was very clear about his faith. I was talking to his son who helped put together his application and it was like a PowerPoint presentation and he talks about his faith, his church, his job. So they certainly knew about it, but they just didn't anticipate that it would be a problem. Or really, what they didn't anticipate was that people would still be teaching and holding and believing the things that the Bible teaches. You know, as Koshi said in his interview, look, this is a 2,000-year-old document. It was a different time. It was a different era. So many other churches are loving and read it completely differently to you. And, yes, some of them do, but many of them read it the same. As Richard Condy, the Bishop of Tasmania, one of my mentors, said on ABC yesterday, City on a Hill simply teaches what Christians have believed for thousands of years. There's nothing noteworthy about a church speaking out on behalf of the rights of the unborn or in favour of marriage as it has been understood for millennia. Like, like we don't, we're not way out. But really, we teach this because ultimately we believe it's God's word. That's what we discover in Scripture, 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That means that it's important, that it's powerful, that it's worth listening to, that it should shape our lives. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, God is our creator and he gives us his word to guide us and to shape us. He's, he's designed us, he's made us, and so he shows us. This is The Bible is the maker's manual to know how to live. So yes, the Bible is 2,000 years old, but actually I, and people would imagine that that means it's irrelevant, that it's outdated, but actually I think the reverse is true. You see, the, the more, the older the book, the, it has been relevant throughout all of those 2,000 years. People of every generation for hundreds and hundreds of years have read God's word, the words from their creator, and found them to be true. So far from being irrelevant, that actually shows its relevance, its power, its significance. I thought there was something interesting that the, uh, the Anglican Archbishop Philip Freer said yesterday. What sort of society do we want to be? Do we want to be one that is really driven by the last focus group? I think it's a great line. See, the, the ethics and the, the ideas and the morality of our culture are just flimsy. They're constantly changing. They're going on the winds of the mood of the culture. But God's word is unchanging because it comes from an eternal and unchanging God. Because it's older than 2,000 years, it's eternal. They're the words of God himself. They are un unchanging because God is unchanging. So know what you believe and stand on it. But then secondly, I think we need to know not just what we believe, but why we believe. See, when the pressure comes in and people start to question what we believe and trying to, how can you still believe that? We need to be able to give a clear and strong answer. We need to know why this is important. Just take a look at the, the issues of this week, abortion and homosexuality. We know what we believe, that we're pro-life, from womb to tomb, we believe that human sexuality finds its best expression, its, its proper expression in the realm of marriage, one man, one woman for life, and anything outside of that is contrary to God's plan. These beliefs are not unusual, but they're clearly anathema in our culture, inexplicable and offensive, unacceptable, and so it would be tempting to get rid of them. But we don't do that because we believe that God's word is truly life-giving. That if it comes from our creator, he knows what's best for us. And so we entrust ourselves to him and we trust that his word, his wisdom will work in our lives. So take these, these kinds of issues. We, we trust that God's wisdom is true on a matter of something like abortion. We trust that every human has been created in God's image and therefore has a profound and intrinsic value. So we hold to that. It's the same with sexuality. I, I think about how I came to understand the importance of, of uh, remaining pure and, and faithful before marriage. Now, like I grew up knowing that I wasn't supposed to have sex before marriage. I understood that. I believed that. But it's actually only after I got married that I truly got that that I truly understood why God's way was so wise and so important, that the oneness that you have in marriage is something that you don't want to share with anyone else, that this is a profound gift from God. 
So I came to understand the life in God's truth. I came to understand not just what I believe, but why it was worth believing. And all of God's truth is like that. So if we try it, we'll see that it works. If we trust God, we'll see his wisdom. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So all of us, let's study God's word in depth for ourselves and see not just what to believe, but why we believe it. And then thirdly, we need to know who we believe in. See, one of the things that's been hard this week is that some people have kind of put a space between us and Jesus. You know, we believe this, but Jesus is like this. Uh, we're exclusive, intolerant, but Jesus is loving and inclusive. And that grieves us, right? Because we... We want to, we, we see ourselves as connected to Jesus. We see ourselves as aligned with him. And actually, we have discovered this. We have discovered this for ourselves because Jesus is both inclusive and exclusive. He is the most exclusive of all. As God, he is perfectly holy and he has the most demanding of standards, the most exacting of standards. He demands perfection from all humanity. And yet he is incredibly inclusive because he forgives our sin and makes it possible for us to be accepted. This is the Jesus that we have come to know. This is the Jesus that we believe in. And so it's always so ironic to me that uh, people talk about Christians as incredibly judgmental because really Christians are the first people to judge themselves. You see, we sense how far short we fall of God's glory. You think of Paul calling himself the chief of sinners. A true Christian judges themselves first and sees how much they need Jesus. And what they discover is that Jesus is their saviour. But you wouldn't even care about him being a saviour unless you needed saving. That's the Jesus that we have come to know. So do you know him like that? Do you want to know him like that? I was thinking about it during the week and, and trying to think of a story that just encapsulates what Jesus is like. And there's so many, of course, but the one I kept coming back to was the one in John 4 where Jesus meets the woman at the well in Samaria. Now, this lady is the most unlikely person for Jesus to speak to. First of all, she's a Samaritan. If you know anything about the history of the, the Bible lands, they were arch enemies with the Jews. Secondly, she's a woman. And Jewish men never really spoke to women alone. They were looked down on by Jewish men, particularly by a teacher or a rabbi like Jesus. So she's a Samaritan and she's a woman. And then finally, she's a sinful woman. You see, as the story goes on, we discover that she had had five husbands, was currently living with another bloke, and so she would be known in the village as the sinner. That's how she would be seen. In fact, that's why they happened to meet. 
She comes to the well in the middle of the day when the sun's at its hottest because she can't come at another time. All the other women would have come early in the day when it was cooler. It would have been the highlight of their day. They would have come together. They would have laughed and gossiped and enjoyed the fellowship of of being together. But this woman wasn't welcome. She was a sinner. She was judged. She was looked down on. Perhaps she was even seen as a threat. She had six men. They didn't want their husband to be the seventh. And so she is the most unlikely person for the righteous Jesus to encounter. A Samaritan, a woman, a sinful woman. And yet Jesus extends his welcome to her. He's God, so he knows her sin, he knows her shame, and yet he offers her life. He offers her, offers her living water. He says, look, you can have this water from the well, but I can give you something even better. I can give you water that will flow within your life. I can give you new life with me. And he offers the same to us. See, Jesus knows us. Jesus knows all of us, every part of us, and he offers us the living water as well. And we need it because we're all like her. We all carry sin and shame. Maybe it's dramatic and scandalous, or maybe it's subtle and hidden. Either way, Jesus knows about it. He can see it, and I think we can see it too. Like we can try to hide it, we can try to obscure it, we can kind of try to judge other people so that they don't see what we're doing, we can deflect it, we can avoid it. But ultimately, we can't get rid of it. It's there, and Jesus knows it. Jesus knows us, and yet he still offers his welcome. He is willing to forgive us if we bring it to him. He's willing to save us if we ask him to save us. If we come and repent and say sorry, if we humble ourselves and submit to his lordship, if we entrust ourselves to his grace, he will give it to us. He will give us living water. So Jesus knows you. Do you know him? And then if we know him, then we will make him known because we've experienced that grace. And that's what we want to be about as a church. Truly grappling with our own sin and then experiencing his grace so we can proclaim this saviour to the world around us. As we come to a close, I started with Peter's description of God's people as exiles, but also I want you to notice that other word he uses, elect exile. It changes everything. First of all, if we are the elect, then we are chosen. We might be exiled by the world, rejected by the world, but we are chosen and loved and embraced by God. And then secondly, if we are the elect, then it shows us that God is in control and nothing falls outside of his plans. He's not surprised. He's not overwhelmed. There's no culture war that he's going to lose. He's not like Essendon, backtracking, scrambling, switching to plan B, plan C or D. He's chosen us And he won't go back on that. He won't force us to resign. He won't cancel us. He won't turn his back on us. He is committed to us 
and he will stay committed to us. He will never let us go. Romans 8.38, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that means that we can trust God. He is in control. And so we can trust that he is working in us and for us. And I can't wait to see what his plan is with all of this stuff. What's he going to do out of this? I was speaking to Catherine, uh, Andrew Thorburn's wife, on Wednesday. Just an incredible woman of great faith and strength. She had been so crucial in the whole thing. She was praying with Andrew as he tried to find a way forward, as he wavered, as he was tempted even. But she helped him make the right decision. She's been with him through every turn and trial for years. And in the calm after the storm, she turned to him on the Wednesday and said, maybe this is what God is calling you to. Maybe this is going to be your next thing. Seeking to help protect God's people and freedom of religion. We'll see where that goes. Andrew's got a million ideas. But wherever it goes, God is laying out the path for him and for us. We are his elect exiles. And I think he's calling us to be who we are, who we are called to be. Uh, one of the most interesting reinterpretations of our church's name was Light on a Hill. Uh, so someone called us on Sky News. And yet, of course, it's actually the image that Jesus has intended for us. Matthew 5, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are a city on a hill. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Like, it's not possible for it to be hidden, certainly not for us right now, (laughs) but it's not supposed to be hidden either. We're supposed to be a light, a light on the hill, shining the light of God's goodness through the community around us so that they can see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. That's what God calls us to. That's his plan for us. So let's shine. How about we pray together? Lord God, uh, we are so thankful that we can pray to you. We're so thankful that you are the God who unites us all, that brings us all together. Lord, um, we thank you that you are in control and that you are listening and that you are strengthening us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's afraid. Lord, I pray that you will protect them and look after them. I pray that they will know your presence and your guidance and leading. Lord, help us to be brave. Help us to know what we believe, to know why we believe it, and ultimately to know who we believe in, the one who calls us to follow and who promises to stand with us. Lord, you are our king and we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church 
or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.